0: This is my Bible I believe it's God's Word I believe every word is true and it is all that I need yes first Samuel chapter 17 we saw last week we saw the dark times we saw the judges the times of the judges and it was a it was a hard time for Israel but a lot of it was their own fault and their their own fault was they rebelled against God's God's truth. He He commanded. And you know, when he commands, believe it or not, it's not a suggestion. He commands because he expects us to do it. And the reason why is he's just trying to save us from our own self and from the damage and the consequence that follows from our disobedience. So he commands us. And when we don't follow the commands, then there's obviously going to be trouble. And I think we are seeing this. This only two-road thing is so prevalent. You can either be on the right road or the wrong road, his road or your own road. And we are making the scripture last week, this week, is making it so clear that this is what it looks like when you're on the wrong road, and this is what you're able to do when you're on the right road. And so we start with the very familiar story, but I hope that you learn more than just your little flannel graph Bible story about David and Goliath. I, I hope and pray you really are learning how to study scripture and that you go slow and you realize that there's a reason why the story is in there and the reason is for you. And a lot of times we just know the head knowledge of the stories, but there's a reason why these examples? These particular stories. These particular people are in there, and they're in there for you and me. And so now the Philistines. We 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 saw last week the Philistines were the enemy of God's people, and they were always they were always there, trying to to cause trouble. And the Lord used them many times to try to wake His people up, but. Philistines, they were the prime enemy. And now they're gathering together again. They're making their battle lines. And and I've never asked a question before about drawing a picture. So I, I wish I could see some of your artistic abilities, but I, I know, I don't know, but, but I don't care whether you did stick people or like me, I just did little X's, but I, I want you to see when you go in there and you write a picture, that I want you to get yourself in the story. I want you to picture in your mind what it was like, what's going on. And the more that you do that, the more you can feel and you can you can understand that there's so much going on here. So you've got the Philistines on one hill. You've got the Israelites on the other hill. You've got a little line. I hope you drew a little line, a bad line. And then the valley in between. And so this is this is exactly what's happening in our mind right now. And then here he comes. A champion named Goliath. And boy, when I said, you know, write down the details about him. I had a Sunday school teacher once, and she drew a cutout. And Us little kids, we were just astounded at his size. I don't think that when you think nine feet, he was over nine feet tall. I mean, that's freaky, you know? And this giant comes out, and then the Bible doesn't say how much he weighed. It does say that he was able to wear equipment of 125 pounds, and that's 5,000 shekels, so... That's 125 pounds. That had to be a pretty big stature. In fact, somebody told me, and I don't know how much truth there is in it, that they discovered from their findings that he was 750 pounds. Now, I don't know. You can take it or leave it. But he had to be big enough to, you know, carry this nine feet tall thing. And he had to wear 125 pounds of equipment. So, you know, he is, so again, picture in your mind, this is a huge man. This is a huge, huge man, and he would scare anybody. And I'm sure he doesn't have a high-pitched, whiny voice either. I'm sure when he talked, it just boomed through that valley. You talk about acoustics. So, a champion, yeah, I can see why he was a champion, um, in some of my findings, I, I saw that um, that they would use, you know, like these freaks, kind of, these giants, and they would face off together instead of putting all their people or all their armies together. You know, if they, they would just kind of stick their, their, their giants at each other, and then that would determine who won for the day or whatever. But anyway, here we see both sides already lining up, and... Goliath comes out and he was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a scale armor of bronze, weighing five thousand shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point, its iron point alone was between twelve and fifteen pounds. That was that was just the point of that thing and his shield-bearer went ahead of him. I bet he looked like a little runt, don't you think, as he went ahead of this Goliath, and he was bearing the shield or whatever. But but see, can't you, even with these first seven verses, isn't there a lot going on in your imagination and in your mind? This is quite a setting. And then Goliath stood... And he would come out periodically, and he would come out, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man. Have him come out down to me if he's able to fight. Now, here's the deal. I'll give you a deal. If he is able to fight and kill me, then we, the Philistines, will become your subjects but if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and serve us. Now, here's a very simple deal. Then the Philistine said, and you can just you can just imagine his booming voice. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, and and let us. L- Fight each other on hearing the Philistines' words, words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, I can see why everybody was terrified of this, and I'm sure you can too. But the sad thing when I read that was I expected more from my leader. And it says right here: Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But it shouldn't have surprised me, because last week, remember, we went over the story about his coronation day, and they can't find him, you know? So, you know, right away, you get a little hint of that he's not the most courageous. Oh, he might look kingly. But, you know, I, I really didn't think he had a whole lot between the ears, and he certainly didn't have courage. And that is, those are two qualities that I think are very important in a leader, and here he is again terrified right along with his people so then we hear about david and and you know again we have a description of his family and and he comes from you know there's eight brothers and and three of them the top 3 have committed themselves to god's or, or to Saul's service to the war effort and like any typical parent then you have, you have um, Jesse saying to David, I need you to go and bring some food. You know, obviously he's concerned about his three sons. You know, not one, not two, but three boys in the war effort. And so, you know, can you, you know, hear David, this is what I want you to bring and, and check on how they're doing and then come back and report to me. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, now, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember verse 20, that David, you know that a shepherd felt great responsibility for his sheep. I mean, I think they develop relationships even. I think that there's no way David, knowing, knowing the kind of man, young man he is, that he would just leave him with just anybody says he left him with another shepherd i'm sure that you know they talked they knew each other well and he in his responsible way left his sheep with another shepherd so remember that he went out and then he got all the supplies and he went to see his brothers and on his way verse 22 David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Now, you have got to have seen and thought, split-second timing. I mean, Goliath didn't do this all the time. He just did it once in a while. And right at the right time, he's shouting because God's got a plan. Timing is, I mean, split-second timing is critical here. And we see that that David is at the front line caring for his brothers just when Goliath is come on, coming out and shouting, coincidence? Hardly. David's got a job to do. Well, so, and there again, why we sang in his time. Another reminder, we've always got to tell ourselves God's timing is perfect. And sometimes when he doesn't move fast enough, or we think he's not doing anything at all, we have to keep by faith, because we know it's true, keep telling ourselves his timing is perfect. And he's up to something. And sometimes we just have to wait. And then in these instances, we see this split second. So now um, David asked the men, standing near him, verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? Now watch how he describes this. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God all of David's all of David's questions here all pertain to what is done against the Lord you know that was his main concern right here he says this Philistine is disgracing the Lord and he is defiling the armies of the Lord and then they repeat they repeat what was in verses 25 they say well yeah I mean Saul has made it he he's made it quite you know and he's got some good incentives here three good incentives to try to get somebody to do this they need to get rid of this guy And so Saul said, anybody who is willing to fight this giant, I will see to it that they don't ever have a thing to be concerned about. They will have enough money for the rest of their life. They will never have to be in need of anything ever again. Number two, I'll even give them one of my daughters. And, and you know, to be a son-in-law of the king is nothing to, you know, that's pretty good you know and then the third one i'll even exempt your family from all of their taxes so there are three three great incentives and yet still no takers because in your mind you've got this giant who is making things so you know, I mean, no one feels, it looks like a hopeless cause. They, they're looking at this giant as, no way, no way possible here. Now this is where you've got to keep in mind, and maybe you've heard a lot of sermons on the subject, but what about a giant you might be facing? A giant is anything coming at you that you look, just like you're picturing with Goliath, you think, Impossible. Nothing good can come from this. A giant is like Jehoshaphat, remember? Vast army, vast army coming against you. We all have a giant or a vast army. And both of these stories have helped us because life does bring giants. Life, even the Lord, brings vast armies sometime. And we have to know how we're going to handle it I remember, and I'm just going to quickly go over this, Jehoshaphat's prayer. This is how Jehoshaphat prayed. He said, he started his prayer. Yes, he was alarmed. Of course, it threw him off. Yes, it did. And whenever a crisis or something surprises you, it takes your breath away. No one wants to hear those words or go through that type of experience. But yet, then you have a split second to resolve what road you're going to go through this on when you choose to go through it on the Lord's road like Jehoshaphat did, he knew the first thing he had to do was recognize who God was. Maybe he started singing, how great thou art. Maybe he started realizing, that's right, we have an almighty God. And that's the way David um, looked at God, called him almighty. And he is sitting in his place and he reigns. And Jasper right away, you can almost sense when you start that way, because when you start your prayer after a crisis hits you, the first thing I bet the majority of us start our prayer with, help me, take this away. I want to be comfortable and happy again. I don't want this to happen. That's the normal human response, and yet that's not the way we should start because when you start acknowledging and you start picturing in your mind, you have an almighty God who loves you so much. He's sitting on his throne, and he knows exactly how, when, and why, and he's got, he's up to something. When you recognize that, you can just feel, you can sense yourself like, oh, yeah, that's And then his number two section of his prayer was, remember how you were there when, and of course you don't have to remind God, but you remind yourself. You remind yourself, like, remember when I went through that? He was there. Oh, remember when you took me through this and you were there? Remember. And then you think, of course, he's not about to let me off now. And then the third was, and this is so human, but the Lord knows we're human, so Joseph, says, but we got a big problem here. It looks hopeless here. And I'm crying out to you. Remember, again, Psalm 119, those three verses, I cried out, I cried out, I cried out, right in a row. This is my problem. You're not telling me he knows, but when he, yeah, I'm crying out to you. And then he finished his prayer by saying, and we can't do it without you. That's how you face a giant or a vast army. You recognize him as almighty God, sovereign, perfect in every way. And you say, remember and look back. Remember I said we're going through 16 chapters and that 10th question, I want to look back and see how faithful God has been. And then the third one is, yeah, of course, cry out to him. Pour out your heart. But then always put at the end, I can't do it without you. Your perfect will be done. I mean, Jehoshaphat knew that the Lord was going to deliver. He was going to deliver them. He knew that. But when he went over that hill, he had no idea how the Lord was going to deliver. And he didn't know if deliverance meant deliver them to glory. All we know is that God knows what's best and he knows how to deliver us in the best way. And David, he knew, and he he knew that one time in the field, a bear came. One time in the field, a lion came. And he knew that God helped him deliver what he couldn't do on his own. I mean, he's a young man with normal human strength facing a bear and a lion. Now, this is the heart of David, and he hears this this yell from Goliath, and he hears hears all what Saul will do, and I don't think that even, even phases him. All he's thinking about is this man is defiling. He's a disgrace, and he's got to be dealt with. And so he's asking a couple questions. It's all he's doing is asking a couple questions. And then, verse 28 when his oldest brother heard him speaking with men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Now, see, that's what I want you to remember. David left him in good hands, but look at the heart of his brother. And then he says, "This I know how conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. You only came, you only came to watch the battle." I mean, this is this is um, well. What went through my mind? I thought, "Ooh, there's there's family drama in the Jesse household." And that sounds familiar. It's always family drama. And look, what is the oldest brother's problem? I mean, the word isn't in here. It is with Saul, but it isn't with the oldest brother. But you know it is. What is his problem? He's jealous. He is so jealous. And see, jealous is a sneaky one. See, because no one knows. It's one of those silent little sins. And you don't even classify it as sin most of the time, and you don't even realizing it's really a problem. But jealousy will turn to anger and to hatred, and it will eventually destruct in some way, whether it be a relationship. If it is not nipped, if it isn't, if it isn't brought to the surface, if it isn't dealt with, it is a sneaky one that just keeps going and going, and it's ugly. Well, you see, because look, does he have any right at all to say, I know how conceited you are? That's his youngest little snot-nosed brother out in the shepherd's field. You know, pretty soon, maybe right now I should tell you, there is a difference between when you got to correct somebody or when you criticize somebody. And we know from what Paul teaches us in Galatians, sometimes we do need to be corrected. And we better pray that we've got someone who loves us enough in our life, even though, even though none of us likes to be corrected because we all think we're perfect. But sometimes someone loves us enough to say, maybe you don't notice what you're doing, but I see and I just wanted to make sure that you know and, you know. I mean, there's not one of us that says, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you told me that. No, we'll come up with our defenses. But the difference between correcting and criticizing is when you are correcting someone, you know it's going to be difficult. You're not out to pick a fight, but you love them enough. You have their best interest in mind. And sin can be blinding sometimes. And and sometimes you, you need someone, like I said, to love you enough to say, I see it. And we're trying to help you here. That's correcting. And then there's criticism. And criticism is when you have your best interest in mind. And this is what I see here. So he is jealous of his brother, and he's probably got that spirit of, you know, jealousy just going through his system. And because of that, you know, he knows he shouldn't be. He knows there's really no no credibility to what he just said. But he's trying to put David down so in his guilt he is then he doesn't look so bad. And that's what criticism does. You have your best interests in mind. You're trying to put them down so you don't look so bad because you're dealing with something. And you're not too proud of what's going on inside and and someone else kind of makes you feel guilty and so let's put them down so then I don't have to feel see see, they make mistakes too criticism it's nasty and I told this story and I'm going to tell it again because it came to my mind I was in that little church and Came to do a concert at christmas time and right before church about a minute to seven here comes a big motorcycle and, And I heard it outside and all of a sudden this guy comes in the church And he's got all black leather and he is clanging and clinking all the way down He comes right in that little church and sits in the front row and, you know, it was it was quite a sight in that little church to have that man there. He's all alone, just plunked himself right down. So I gave the concert. When I was done, I felt compelled. And I said, if anybody at this blessed time of year, if you want to meet the Savior who has come to save you, glory to God in the highest, unto us the Savior is born, and he was born for you, if you want that Savior as yours, Please don't let tonight go. Don't leave this place. Come and kneel with me, and I would love to lead you to, to your Savior. And he didn't even, he, even, he didn't even wait. He stood right up and walked. He didn't have to go far. This little church, front row, was right there by me. And he came up, and, and I knelt with him right there, and he accepted Jesus as his Savior. What a sight. What a sight. But in, in the middle of all this, there's Miss Krabby Pants. And I say that because she played the piano and I don't know how you can play the piano and and know those songs and still have that look on your face, but she was on a mission and her mission was to get me. And so all during the concert, she didn't even hear, she didn't even see, spiritually see that man get saved. And so after this man left and even the minister left, I mean, everybody was gone accept her and she said to me I want to talk to you and I thought yeah I bet you do you know I just knew it and I tried I tried to brace myself and then she said these words that I'm telling you just crush me she said you are a disgrace to the Lord Jesus a disgrace and I'm thinking that you can't say anything worse to me and I said, why would you say that to me? And she said, well, just look at you. Look at your nails, look at your hair, look at, look at how you're dressed. And I gotta tell you, my first thought was, man, am I glad I didn't wear what I thought I was gonna wear tonight. <laughs> I mean, a few things. I mean, I, these little things go through your mind, you know. It's just natural. Because I did. I, I remember thinking, no, maybe I better not wear that. I'll wear this. I'll dress down tonight. <laughs> and so anyway. But then she went on and on, and she just kept going. But it was all service, and it was all it was all physical. And she just let me have it with both barrels, and I really didn't have a whole lot to say except I'm sorry. I never, ever intend to be a, a you know, a... A distraction, exactly. I never intend to be a distraction. And, and I just I went in the car and I told Tom, it took 45 minutes to get home. And for 40 minutes, 40 minutes, I went on about this l- lady. And I even made this comment. I even made this comment, and this is my point. What criticism, she didn't have my best interest in mind. Because actually, I think she would have loved to look like me with joy of the Lord on, my, on her face because she wouldn't know joy if it smacked her. <laughs> so there was something about me that she was, she was feeling uneasy about. Maybe I was getting too close. Maybe the Lord Jesus was starting to pin her to the wall a little bit to let her see that she is too critical and too negative and maybe she's a good religious lady, but she doesn't know Jesus. There are a lot of church people who don't know Jesus. Oh, they're very religious. But you mark my words. They are the most critical and the most negative and the most, most damaging. All the way home, 40 minutes, I said to Tom, Man, you know, maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm a disgrace. Maybe I do. Jesus more of a disservice than a service. See what criticism can do. I can remember Chad's first sermon too, when he preached his first sermon, and I couldn't, I, we couldn't be there, and so I called him right away. He said, didn't go so good. He preached in Psalm 121. How can you go wrong with Psalm 121? But apparently, when the people were going through, somebody decided that he did it all wrong and he was. And I thought, I, I, I was just, I, felt, I just cried. I thought to myself, and I said it. I said, Chad, welcome to ministry. Isn't that sad that I had to say that to him? Welcome to ministry. And I said, What did you do? You, how'd you handle it? And he said, Well, I just shook his hand and said, um, Maybe we can love each other enough to agree to disagree. And I thought, Oh, that was great. I said, That was beautiful. I said, What did you do after? He says, I went in another room and cried. And started to doubt because he had 11 o'clock service to preach the same message at, and then all you're thinking is, oh no. And I'm on my way home, and maybe I maybe I should throw in the towel. See what criticism can do? You can throw in the towel, you can quit. Cause you to doubt. Because I have a wise husband who let me get it out for 40 minutes. But after 40 minutes, he said, I have had it. And he said, you have talked about this woman for 40 minutes. And you have not once mentioned the man who was saved, didn't I? (laughs) Oh, yes. But Miss Krabby Pants let me tell you it is a religious nightmare that's running rampant it's when you know jesus there's such a difference between correcting and criticizing and as brothers and sisters in christ we need each other to correct but when we criticize i'll tell you you slice them off at the knees and you don't know what will happen Look at verse 29. This isn't the first time this brother has done this to him. I mean, the way he he asked this question, you can almost hear him, now what have I done? You know, now what have I done? And then he simply says, Can I even speak? In other words, can I even ask a question? Can I even get some information? I wonder if David would have taken this criticism and said, obviously, you know, I'm just a problem. Um, I shouldn't be here. Um, I wonder if David went home and said, uh, no, uh, this whole king thing, uh, not for me. I uh, can't handle it. I mean, Jesus came through his line for crying out loud. That is big stuff. I love the way he handled it. How do you handle difficult people that are going to criticize you? I mean, yes, he, he, he confronted his brother and said, now what have I done? Can I even speak? But then after that, it's like you, you could sense the spirit of God saying, don't even go there. He's not even listening. It's kind of like what Jesus, when they were asking him questions that the night he was going to be crucified and he didn't answer them. And you're thinking, why are you defending yourself? And he says, I, I know. I know who I am. You know who you are in Christ Jesus, and you don't. You don't have to fight back. You know it's like casting pearls before swine. And Jesus said to that, "Why bother?" But he didn't give up. He didn't turn. He didn't turn and run. And he didn't. He didn't doubt. He just turned and started talking to somebody else. He brought up the same matter to men who were standing there and what David said was oh, was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. So obviously, again, God had people, right place, right time. And the word got to Saul and Saul, of course, Sends for him, and we know the story. Saul tries to put his armor on him, and, and David says, No, I can't. In verse um, 39, I can't go out in knees because I'm not used to this. And then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. I don't know, maybe you wondered why five stones did you think won't well, case a miss. I heard an interesting thing, and again, take or leave it, because it's not in this, this particular scripture, and this is the word of God, every word is true, and it isn't in there, so I hesitated to say it, but I found it so intriguing, and it sounded like David, that Goliath had four friends or brothers that would come out and help, and David knew it. So, you know, whether that meant he just had extra ammunition for if anybody else came to defend Goliath, he was ready for them. I don't believe David thought he was a bad shot. I think because he knew whose strength he was going in, he knew. He knew. So, anyway, the Philistine takes one good look at him, and, and in verse 43 says, um, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. These, I, I couldn't find enough color to make sure that this stands out in my Bible. Because I think these are, this is the verse that you and I, between this verse and 2 Chronicles 20, this is how you and I face the giant. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That means no one more mighty than him the God of armies of Israel whom you have defiled, this day there is no conceit in this man at all, big brother. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you and cut off your head. I mean, look at verse 37. 37. I'm going back a little bit, but the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Never once did he think he could do what. He recognized who his God was. He knew that the Lord helped him with the bear and the lion. Remember, so he's not going to let him off now. He acknowledges the problem, but I can't do without you. I go in your strength. There's your prayer. You know, I couldn't help but go back to 2 Timothy chapter one when it just went to my mind. I, I thought when Paul was handing the mantle, his spiritual mantle, over to Timothy, the two the two men couldn't be any more different as far as as far as personality and the way they dealt with people and that kind of thing. You know. Paul was aggressive, right in the face, straightforward, type A. And then you've got Timothy who was more more, um, gentle and his personality was maybe more shy and a little quieter and maybe not as forceful. And yet he was the one that Paul chose. And he said it so beautifully in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He acknowledges, he says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived out in your grandma Lois and in your mom Eunice. And I am persuaded that that same faith now lives in you. What a reminder that our job is never done. And our influence is great. And we don't have to be preaching and clubbing over the, our biggest Bible and by their finger in their face. But living out Jesus, being, the, being tasty salt and bright light for Jesus, that's noticeable. That's without any words at all. And then he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is the Holy Spirit. In other words, Timothy, you gotta, you got to let that Holy Spirit do his job in you. Because then he says this, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity. And to me, this is, this is what shows you and I do not have an excuse. I don't care if you are type A or if you're shy and introverted and quiet. And, and you, you, So often that's used as an excuse. Saying, I can't do it. I mean, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not that loud. I'm not that aggressive. I can't. This is right there, when it comes out to live in Jesus, you and I do not have an excuse. You're just not flame. You're not fanning your flame. You have not been given a spirit of timidity, but instead you've been given the Holy Spirit, which will give you power and love and self-discipline. Isn't this what you see in David? You want a heart like God's? Look at David's behavior with all confidence, not in himself or physical armor or ammunition. He goes out there in the strength of the Lord God. And if that means singing that song, there is power in the name of the Lord. There is strength in the name of the Lord. There is hope in the name of the Lord. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You and I have got all we need in that power. We're just not fanning the flame enough. Look at verse 48. Again, this is underlinable because look, at this is how you face the giant. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward him. Does that mean turning around and running? No. You think back. Remember what Saul and the other people are doing? They're all running and hiding. The power of God enables you to go after the giant. You don't have to run from it. Well, we know that he, you know, that that the stone went right where it needed to be, and after he killed him, he cut his head off. This is why I know. little boys love this story. It's not that they, they, he just killed the the Goliath, or the giant, but he cut his head off. You know, and and then and then did you notice that in verse 54, David took the Philistine's head, and that it was no tiny head. He, he brought the head to Jerusalem, the, the capital, the main force of Israel, to make sure that everybody could see proof. There's the proof that there is power. He can use us no matter what our personality, whatever our stature, whatever, whatever your excuse is. He can use you, and that was proof. He's carrying this big old head saying, take a look at this, and then take a look at me. I can't do it. I couldn't possibly do it. What it looks hopeless, nothing is hopeless in the name of the Lord. So after that, in chapter 18, David finished talking with Saul, and Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Maybe you've heard the horror stories that, that people have said about David and Jonathan that, that have a relationship that's not scriptural. I want you to know that that is so ridiculous and I'll prove it to you. But I did ask questions to try to get you to think in another avenue because I know the way the Bible writes it. But you don't have to have many, but do you have one? Could you think of one person? I mean, it could be a spouse. It could be someone in your life that is closer to you than even a brother or sister. I mean, this friend you can count on. This friend is a gift from God. And you just don't know. You can only but say thank you to the Lord for this because you you don't know how you would have made it through without this friend who the Lord put in your life at just the right time and place. I would say David needed this friend right about now. And it's something that he was Saul's son. David needed Jonathan. Jonathan needed him because I'm sure it wasn't easy to, to love the Lord and want to put the Lord first like Jonathan because they, they had, they had, what they had in common was the Lord. And I'm sure it was not easy to live in a household with Saul as your dad. So Jonathan needed David. David needed Saul. This is a gift. Jonathan, verse 4, took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with a tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. I, you know, Jonathan looks at Saul and sees that this kid doesn't come from a lot of means. And David even admits it later. He doesn't come from a lot, so, and, he come, and, and Jonathan has, I mean, I'm sure he just has to go to any closet and pull out about one or ten more. And so he's supplying David what he needs. Look at verse 5. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully. I know there's the rest, that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. But I want you to look at whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it. Now, I'm sure some of the the things, like maybe even playing his harp, do you think after killing Goliath, don't you think in a human point of view, he's saying to Saul, hey, I don't do that menial stuff anymore. I mean, after all, I killed your enemy here. No, that line you don't want to miss. No matter what he just did, he still knew his place. Whatever you do, you do as unto the Lord. And he never, even after killing Goliath, did he take that prideful, conceited attitude. He did his task Now, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and tambourines and lutes and they danced and they sang. Now, Saul was here. David wasn't. Saul was here. And then they started singing this, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, when you're not walking with the Lord and it's all about you, that is not going to go over too good. Because he's not going to see it like, well, you know, the Lord used. This was not a John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist said, um, his sandals, I can't even, I'm not even worthy to tie, and I will become less and less so he can become more and more. I mean, you know, John, John the Baptist knew his place, but John the Baptist was walking step by step with God's spirit. Saul was walking in his own strength and in his own self, and all he heard was, hey, I just had somebody upstage me here. Saul was very angry. See, watch, watch these emotions. Look at these human emotions that have gotten out of control, bigger than faith, jealousy and anger and fear. All of these emotions have taken over. And I'll say this over and over. Emotions are part of human nature. Yes, they are. But when emotions get bigger than faith, bigger than who God is, bigger than what you know about him, that he's right there with you and he's up to something, if that gets, if that gets minimized by your emotion, you're, you're going down. And now look, it says, they have credited, Saul says, they have credited David with tens of thousands. And I underlined this because it said, he thought. He thought. In in another verse, um, in in verse 17, for Saul said to himself. See, this is what our mind will do. How tricky these thoughts are. If you don't nip it, if you don't nip a thought like this, it will eventually come out in an action. And I couldn't help and I wrote in my Bible right here, Romans 12, verse 2, and you know the verse. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind needs to be controlled Because if it isn't human nature and emotions and all that will take you for a ride in a direction you don't want to go and Saul's your living proof. Again, why are these stories in there? Why are these people in there? To teach us. Because we're all the same when it comes to human nature and, and sin and temptation See, he is so on the wrong path, and the next day an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but the next line got me to have to study this because it did not make sense. Because whenever I see the word prophecy, I mean, I already understand that an evil spirit from God or, or a distressing spirit from God is only our own human spirit which then will take on guilt and anger and hatred. If you're not flowing in the Holy Spirit, the other Spirit of God that he's given us before the Holy Spirit was the Spirit of us, little s Spirit. We all have one. But after we come to the cross of Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit, which will take over that little s Spirit. But if you're not willing to let the S spirit take over you, then that little less spirit that he's created us with will take over. Well, then it says, what did Saul do? He was prophesying in his house. And I'm thinking, man. I often wondered how come pastors, you know, often in sermons they'll say, in the Hebrew and I kind of poo-pooed that, you know, like, all right, you went to seminary, okay, you know. That's terrible. And I, I take all my thoughts back on that because this time I thought there's got to be a deeper. So I went the Hebrew definition of prophecy, and it opened wide open. There's two definitions to prophecy according to Hebrew. See, when when the Bible is translated, sometimes things are You know, you don't quite get that. But if you go back to the Hebrew, the way it was written, then you see Hebrew says that prophecy is, one, yes, the kind we think when God gave to Isaiah and Jeremiah and even the man of God to Eli, you know. You know that he does give certain people the ability to say his words. They're the instrument, the vessel. That we all know. That's what prophecy is. But there's a second definition to prophecy. It's kind of like a man-made definition. And this is where it makes perfect sense. When a person is not walking with the Holy Spirit, it's not God's words. Because you tell me how he can be, be using, being used by God to be an instrument with a, with a spear in his hand ready to kill. So you know there's gotta be another definition. And the prophecy is the human definition of, of prophecy, and that is when you don't know what to say, you're just babbling and you're jabbering, and there's and it's it's incoherent and you're you're just nervous talk and so what Saul was doing here, because he was still being controlled by by him by his own little S spirit. That he just started incoherent, talking, jabbering, and saying, you know, trying to be impressive, but he wasn't. And I mean, it it just fiasco. While David was playing the harp as usual, Dan saw it, a spear in his hand, and he hurled it. See, that's why he wasn't being the vessel for God to use his words, he was a vessel for his own little spirit. And out of him came words that didn't even matter. They had no, they had no lasting effect. It was gibberish. It was ramble. Verse 12, Saul was afraid, of course. See, now you're you've got jealous, you've got anger, now you've got fear. Now he's afraid of David. Verse 17, for Saul said to himself, See, now, now he's gonna start conniving. And this is where my question seven, I don't think it made a whole lot of sense. But, um, and I'm sorry, when I wrote it, I knew what I meant. And, and you were supposed to too. But when I did the lesson last week, I thought, where in the world was your head? But I, then, I, this is what I meant for it to say. How can you tell that in Saul's life, Saul's self got in the way? I forgot to put Saul in there. That you saw self in there, but yet this part of the question was right. But where did you also see in this chapter that David had a lot to learn also? And maybe, because my husband Tom is in the glass on Monday night, and he said to me, he said, oh, I, I got that question. And I said, you did? He said, sure, I got it because I just looked at David as the whole thing. And David, he had a lot to learn. But self got in the way of, of him um, when he faced Saul about, um, I'm not worthy to be your son-in-law. I just hugged the guy. I said, that is so good. Way to go, Tom. He said, I didn't think it was a hard question. So either way you want to look at it, whether you want it, because obviously you see what self takes over, and self did take over for Saul because now he's going to manipulate and he's going to try to use his daughters to get David into the Philistine territory where they will kill him because look what he says, I will not raise a hand against him, let the Philistines do that but then david comes and says who am i see i mean you know i am not the social status i can't possibly become your son in law we're from lower means we don't have money for a dowry we can't, i can't possibly this is not going to work see he is not thinking clearly because this is what i said before and i'm going to say it again you and i i don't care how much education, I don't care what your social status, I don't care how much, how much you might have materialistically, I know in the world's eyes it's intimidating. I used to be plagued by it. I would step back. I would think somebody, I, you know, you keep your mouth shut. They know more than you just because of their position. And I have learned from studying God's word that I am a child of his. And there is no greater title And I don't have to put my head down to anybody. And this is what David had to learn. I might might not come from the means that the king has come from and all this kind of thing, but David should have said, whatever, I mean, I am God's child. But he came back and kind of, oh no, I can't possibly, I don't measure up, all this. How much has that gotten in the way from us? I don't measure up. I can't possibly. So the first daughter was given to someone else, but then, then and Saul's thinking, see, David's thinking, well, I don't, I'm not worthy of her. Saul's thinking, oh, nuts. I'll try daughter number two. And then he started figuring out, hey, you know what? He thinks that he can't possibly afford her because of all the dowry business at that, in that day so I will tell him and this is where look at in verse 25 Saul replied say to David you go to David you tell him he can have my daughter the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins (laughs) you know that's still I mean I I could hardly read it but I knew I had to to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. So when the attendants told David, David's pleased with this because he said, this I can do. So he says, okay, David and his men went out, verse 27, killed 200 Philistines, not just 100. See, Saul is thinking there's no way he can do 100 Philistines. They'll kill him, sure, shooting." But David says, oh, man, you know, he's the warrior. He knows. And he, so he goes out, and with his men, they killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king. And I'm thinking, did he count them out in front of him? <laughs> I'm seeing some of you nod. You were thinking that too. I know. Oh. How did they know that there was exactly 200? He must have, oh, brother. Well, anyway, Saul gave him his son, Michael, in marriage. And you know what? It, it, Michael loved David. Now, chapter 19, no, chapter 19, we see that Saul told his son, Jonathan, because Saul is so in a bad way. He told his son, Jonathan, that he was going to kill David, but Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. He says, you know, this is this is the predicament, this is the facts, and I will do my best to speak for you. In verse 4, he did a bang-up job. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul's father and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands and when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. And you saw it and you were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Well, you know what? That made sense to him. And as surely as the Lord lives, Saul said, David will not be put to death. So David called David, told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul. David was with Saul as before. You know what? When somebody talks sense spiritually... You, you start, Saul says, yeah, yeah, that, that's true. That's right. And it's like he gets back on, and then things go as normal. It's fine. If you just keep the Holy Spirit in control of all things, you think relationships will will go fine. Then look at verse 9. But that lasted about 20 minutes because an evil spirit came upon Saul from the Lord. And again, it was his choice. Don't think for a second that the Lord would remove his Holy Spirit on purpose. Saul chose to run his own wife here. And when the Lord's, <laughs> okay, so then he moves the Spirit, Holy Spirit out. He is now controlled by his self-spirit again. And again, he Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear again. Saul sent men to David's house to watch him to kill because David had escaped from that, and so now he's saying to his men, you go bring him back. I want to kill him. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed, Michael said to David. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. When I read that, I thought, way to go, Michael. This is, this is good until I read verse 13. Then Michael took an idol. What business does she have with an idol in that house? And laid it in the bed, covering it with, gar- with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. What is, she has no business with that idol in there. And then I started looking at the difference about how we look at God's power. You can look at God's power. You can hear the stories of how God intervened and only he could do it. And you clap and you cheer and and you're thrilled. You believe that God's powerful. He can do anything. And this is what I think Michael is. She believes because she sees the power of God in her husband. She's not doubting God's power. The only thing is she doesn't let that, that power change her. And so she thinks that she needs something else. The number two, and this is, should be the power that we, we see God's power, we know his power, and we want to be changed by his power. And if, you're, if you only go halfway, just acknowledge his power, then you'll always need something else in your life. But when you surrender to his power, knowing he is the blessed controller of all things in your life, you've got him on his throne. You remember what he's done for you before. Because look what she says. It's when Saul confronts her. Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away? Michael told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? Didn't David ever say that to his wife? So David fled and made his escape. And then, then you start reading about how Saul's men, when they find out where David is, because this is what I like to This is what I so appreciated about David. Where does he run to? He runs to Samuel. When you are confused, when you, when he, you know, he's being wore down, Saul's nipping at his heels all the time. He's got to be looking over his shoulder. This wears on you. Where does he run to? He runs to the godly mentor. Boy, that's good. That is so good. Well, then things start happening, and Samuel is standing. As their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men because they heard that that's where David was, so they come, and then it says, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they started prophesying, and this is the Spirit of God, so you know it's God's words. And then Saul sent other men the second time, and they prophesied the Spirit of God comes on them. The third time, the Spirit of God comes on another group of men, and then Saul himself. And you're saying, now I'm confused. Why would the spirit, capitalist spirit, come on these men who came with such ulterior motives? And I think that answers the question. <laughs> this is so encouraging. If the spirit of God hadn't come on these men and saw himself, what would have happened to David? He would have been killed. To me, this is so encouraging because not only does the Spirit of God work in us, but the Spirit of God is working around us. And he's working in situations. The Spirit of God came on these men. This was for David's protection. How beautiful is that? And then finally in chapter 20, just one more instance, you know, that this guy has just absolutely gone off the deep end. And here comes Jonathan to the rescue. And when David comes to Jonathan and pours his heart out and says, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? And Jonathan says, "Uh, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to help you here. Look at in verse 3 yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live there's only a step between me and death David says Jonathan says to David in verse 4 whatever you want me to do I'll do it for you I'll tell you this is friends and so they come up with this plan it's the new moon festival there's gatherings there's there's parties and David is supposed to be in his place and Saul will notice that David's not there And this is going to be the fleece. This is the test. If Saul gets mad that I'm not there, even after you tell him that I've gone to Bethlehem to meet with family and, and that, that if he gets mad, then we know that there's trouble. If he doesn't get mad, then we know that things are fine. So let's test his mood here. And then David says to Jonathan, well, how do we know? How, how are we going to know? Verse 13, but if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. So you've got a committed friend here that said, I will, I will test this out, I will feel it out, and I will help you. So it happened. And verse 30, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, this, Look at what he says. Is he nuts or what? Look, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I mean, you weren't such a good dad yourself. I mean, you know, put all the blame, but all your mother, your mother did that. Your mother turned you into this. Look how mad, look how mad. Verse 32. Why why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan, try it again. What he has done nothing but good for you. But Saul hurled his spear at him now. This guy's crazy. Look at I told you. You let emotions take over, and it eventually leads to destruction. And now he's he's throwing a spear at his own kid. So here's the thing: they're going to shoot arrows. Jonathan's going to shoot arrows. They're going to send a little. They're going to send a kid saying, um, "You know, where did where, where did the arrows go?" And the plan is, if they if the arrow is close, David, then that means all is well. See, David doesn't know all this here. He doesn't know that that Jonathan almost got the spear instead of him. I mean, you know, that Saul has just really gone off. So this is the plan. Uh, So the arrows, he says, if the arrows are shot beyond the point, then that means get going and get out of here. So as the boy ran, in verse 36, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? I'm sure David was nearby and he heard, beyond you, Oop, and then Jonathan came right out and said, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. David had come to his friend one more time. He had, in verse 41, after the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then he kissed, they kissed each other, wept together, but David wept the most. I mean, he was so thankful because I'm sure in David's mind, he's thinking, if I had been killed, I mean, this is how this is how God had planned. And, and oh man, Jonathan said to David, You go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. So if ever you need proof about their relationship that it could be anything but honorable, their friendship is based on the name of the Lord. The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, Jonathan went back to Tom. Do you need a clear picture of what it looks like when you're on the self road or when you are on God's road? When you are filled and listening to God's spirit or where you're, when you're listening to your defiled self spirit? It's so clear. Father in heaven, thank you for making it so clear. Now, may it not just be words, but that we go out here, go out of here, and we live this. Father, we know you are powerful, and we just don't want to be in awe of your power. We want that power to change us. Father, we know it can and it will if we just surrender. And we pray this all in our Savior's name who makes life worth living. Amen. Have a good week.